Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, we, as you, most of you know, we started a small series on why we need to be saved, why one must be a Christian, and the goal was simply to give you what you need to share the gospel, to help you understand how to share your Christian faith with greater confidence, to be able to stay focused on the core issues. Too often when we think about the gospel and we want to share the gospel, then we get caught up in this fear and and anxiety because we don't know enough, we think, when in fact every true Christian would know all they need to share Christ. Or we get tempted to go down side issues that have no value whatsoever, but all of a sudden we find ourselves there, and then we wonder why nothing is happening. And so we gave you four simple points and four simple sermons. We gave you the problem, the solution, the commands, and the blessings. Now, if you can picture those four points like a sheet of paper in which four squares are cut out, and you can then lay that over any other religion or any person and their message, what you have then is the ability to assess what the person or religion is saying at the most core issue of salvation. By laying over this, uh, these four points, you can say, what then do they say is a problem? What then do they say is the solution? What then do they say are the commands we are to do? And then what do they say are the blessings that come out of all of this? That's all you're doing. So you can have a friend who is an atheist, and in the course of a conversation, he says that he has no time for religion. That's a common one today. And the reason is because he's an atheist. And so you feel shut down. You're like, okay, I guess... We're done. Well, you can very easily ask him what he sees as the problem with his world. That's all you have to do is say, really, okay. So how do you view the problems going on in this world? Just He's the one that brought it up. All you're asking is him now to explain how he interprets what's going on around him. How does he see the problem in this world? What about the problem he sees within other people? What about the problem that he finds within himself? And with that, actually, all you've done is started the gospel conversation, and it's not that hard. I watch people, and they seem to sweat bullets, and they're like, I don't know what to do. You just talk. You just talk, and you begin to look for those opportunities, and then you simply start with the problem. How do they view this world, and what are... What's the solution? And from there, you can say, I know you're an atheist, and I understand you have no time for religion, but I have a very different answer than you do. If I buy you a coffee, will you give me a few minutes and we can talk? Now, maybe he'll laugh at you and walk away. 
But you'll be amazed at the number of times that they'll say, yeah, because you haven't started out by being a jerk and you haven't gone down some path that doesn't matter. You've just simply asked a question. Well, what we did then is as a result of that, we uh, chose four major religions to show you how this looks and and see it in practice in these various groups. And so the first is the Roman Catholic Church, and then we're going to do Islam, and then Mormonism, and then Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm obviously the one taking care of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church represents, as I said last week, almost 18% of the world's population. By the time we deal with the Catholic Church and Islam, we will deal with at least a third of the human population in this world. Meaning over a billion people to varying degrees of faithfulness would call themselves Catholic. And as I said last week, most every person in this room was at some point a Catholic, has friends or family who are Catholic. You may be a Catholic yourself. And for those of you who were raised in the Catholic Church, it's likely that you have a diverse sense of what it believes. I've been here now in this town for 25 years and have interacted with so many different people. And one of the things that has stood out to me is how often I can talk to an individual who is a Catholic and hear one thing from one Catholic and a totally different thing from another Catholic. By the way, I'd make no mean judgment on that. Talk to any Protestant and you get oftentimes even worse. But what you'll find is a wide diversity of thinking as to what makes you Catholic. But what I want you to understand, all of you, is that it doesn't matter what you think makes you Catholic. The only thing that matters is what the Catholic Church teaches. Because the Catholic Church says that salvation can be not be found anyplace else but within the Mother Church. It's found within the Church, and it's through the Church that salvation is administered. And it is done in a very specific way. One of the things that uh, I think is interesting is the relationship of sin. So we spent a whole hour last week dealing with that. When you talk to somebody, it really won't matter what they think or what their priest even thinks. You'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I love my my local church. I love my priest. He's been so kind to me. He's been so good to our family. He's been the influence. He's done things for good. I appreciate the school that they went to. And on and on they'll list all of those things. But what matters ultimately is what does the church say? What does the church uh, teach? Because the, the church, rather, teaches that if you willfully reject any of their cardinal doctrines, It's a mortal sin, and as you learned last week, a mortal sin means you are now going to hell. So when you talk to a Catholic, you say, well, it says this, and they say, well, I don't believe that. Well, then they're in mortal sin, according to the Catholic Church. And they're not actually even saved, in any sense of the word saved. One of the strange things I find as I learn and, and study and, and talk to people is that for the Catholic Church, the more devout you are, actually sin weighs greater on you. 
as you grow and become more serious about your faith and you understand the nature of the sacraments and the nature of justification and the way one becomes saved, the better you understand that actually the burden becomes greater upon you. And the reason for it is built into the very system of Catholicism. And so what we did last week was go down a rabbit hole of how the Roman Catholic Church views sin. And my goal was very simple. I don't know if I achieved it. I tried. My goal was to show you how complex it is, how incredibly complex the whole issue of sin becomes for the Christian. And I'm saying the Catholic Christian. Show me grace. I'm going to use broad words here. But for the Catholic Christian, sin becomes very, very complex. Not for the non-Christian, but for the Christian. Now you have to deal with all of these various issues. You have to distinguish between what was called a material sin as opposed to a formal sin. Especially when you're dealing with mortal sins or venial sins. Because if you remember from last week, one can commit a mortal sin materially, but it can, in in formality, only be a venial sin. And so you're like, wait a second, how? What's this working? How do you know? Who gets to tell you that the sin that the church says is mortal is formally only venial, so you're good? Who gets to decide that? And how? What's the criteria? And so you have people who simply brush aside the sin or they work with it. Many, many people will encounter a, a priest who downplays it. You'll go into the confession booth and you will confess with great fear and trepidation your mortal sin and the, the priest will tell you, now, now, perhaps they'll ask some questions. In fact, you did not in fact commit a mortal sin, even though it is a mortal sin because In reality, it's only a venial sin for you, and you are fine. Now, they wouldn't say it that way, but that's what it means. One of the things that will stand out the more that you read about this is that for the Christian, the Catholic Christian, sin is something you're never free from. That's what you should not take away. You're never free from the bondage of sin as a Catholic. And any Catholic who tells you otherwise doesn't know their church. Any Catholic who says, I don't agree with you, has not been well taught. But behind all of that is the most pressing problem, and that is how Jesus Christ ends up taking a back seat to everything. When you deal with sin, yes, Christ is there. Christ, his death, his resurrection, they would affirm those things. And if you were were to ask a priest, they would immediately affirm that all of this is premised and based and flowing out of the person and work of Jesus Christ. They would say all of that. But when you watch it play itself out, what you find is that at the center is the Virgin Mary. At the center is the priest and his sacramental works. At the center is the penitent who's doing the sacraments. And on the side is Jesus in the periphery. But what you will not get, 
with absolute and total assurance and, and absoluteness is, is the call to fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. The only thing that saves a man or woman is Christ. It's that wonderful, it's that glorious, it's that deep, it's that full, and it is also that simple. And so what we're going to do today is we're now going to do a deep dive into the idea of the doctrine of justification, which is one of the many blessings Grayson mentioned when you come by faith to Jesus Christ and you entrust yourself to him and him alone for your salvation, then what you have is this thing called justification. And it's, again, one of the many promises, but it's the key one. To be honest, most Protestants today don't have a clue really about what justification is and how it operates. There are many different aspects or facets to the idea of salvation from sin, but when you strip them all down to the very core, at the very core is justification. It's the preeminent one. Get this wrong, in other words, and you get salvation wrong. This is what brought about the great break back in the 1500s called the Reformation. It is, justification is the article or the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Others would describe it as a hinge, or rather the hinge, upon truth and error and which way it will swing. So it is of utmost importance and should not be seen as some small point of difference where we, we agree to disagree, but to understand why it is so important requires that you understand the seriousness of sin, hence last week. Here's the real question. How does a just and holy God justify or declare righteous a wicked sinner? That's the question. How can God be holy and yet take a sinner and call him righteous? What must occur? So going back to sin, you have to grasp that mortal sin in the Catholic Church, is exceedingly powerful in the life of a Catholic. Though when you ask them about it, you will find it is downplayed. In fact, here's my challenge to you, if you have Catholic friends or family, um, and again, kindly, but ask them, when was the last time you committed a mortal sin? Just ask them, when was the last time you did? It's fascinating to me the number of times that I've asked that kind of question, and it's like, oh, it's been ages. And I'm like, really? Have you looked at the lists? I mean, I know you. (laughs) You sure? And if you're not sure, I would encourage you to just simply, before you ask somebody like that, go online and just type in uh, lists of mortal sins, and you'll go to many different Catholic uh, sites that are approved by the Catholic Church and the magisterium, And they will describe for you all of the types of uh, mortal sins that can occur. And so when they ask you that, you can go down through that list and just say, none of these, you've been that good. Because a mortal sin is so bad that it destroys even justification. For the Catholic, you no longer have any justification 
once you've committed a mortal sin, and we'll see that in a moment. So, the church, let's dive in now. The church began way back many, many, many centuries ago to use the Latin Vulgate. That is simply a translation of the Bible. The Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek. And this is, uh, this is where actually the problem began. In the Latin Vulgate, which is translated now into Latin, they used a word for justification. The term to justify in Latin actually meant to make righteous. Hear that, to make righteous. And so the idea began to develop and become enlarged over the years. They took that idea and began to develop and grow it, that what the sinner needed to do was to become increasingly more holy, or to use another word, to become more just, until they are ultimately justified by God. They need to be made righteous. The problem with it is that the Greek term that they translated that way actually means to be declared righteous, which is radically different. Tikaiao is the word, if you care, and, and it simply means to pronounce or declare righteous rather than to make righteous. So the Roman Catholic Church has this idea of sanctification or what they would call sanctifying grace producing and building the person toward a state of becoming fully justified. Get that in mind, that they, they are in the process. What, is, what God is doing in the Catholic is that he is putting more and more righteousness into them until they are fully righteous, because he cannot, as a holy God, allow anyone to be in his presence who is not fully righteous. So they are in the process of being made righteous. Now, right there, many people who are even in the Protestant church would be saying, I have no problem with that. And that shows how poorly you understand the doctrine. That is very different because the biblical model is actually speaking of a state of being declared righteous. It is not being made righteous, but being declared righteous or justified. Now, out of that statement, a fact that you are now justified flows holiness and righteousness and things, but none of those affect your state of justification. You are not more justified because you put away this sin or that sin. There is no perception of your justification starting here and becoming larger as you walk as a Christian. The justification that you have has been declared by God, and it is here at the moment of faith, and it is the exact same at the end of your life. In fact, for all eternity, you will never be more justified than you are on the moment that you believe. The Roman Catholic Church has a method of justification. It's accomplished through the sacerdotal and sacramental system. 
The sacerdotal system simply speaks, if you don't know, of the priest functioning like a mediator between the person and God. Could you now turn them off? I'm seeing more jackets going on, sorry. Um, The sacerdotal speaks of the priest functioning as a mediator between the persons and God through these various functions, but most importantly through the Eucharist on during Mass where he holds up the host and the cup and it becomes the body and blood of Christ. And through that, and as you eat it and drink it, you are given more justifying grace. We'll get into all that. But also, not only is it that sacerdotal aspect, but the priest is a mediator of the sacraments. There are seven in number. And justification begins with the uh, baptism. The sacrament of baptism is the biggie. It's the key. I want you to hear the word I use, though. Justification for the Catholic Church, hear it, begins at baptism. If you get that and you don't hear that word, then you miss the whole point. It begins so up there, I apologize, I am not a PowerPoint guy. Um, I, if you knew how much blood and sweat was spilled on these things, you would bless me because I am pretty proud of them, but I know they stink, okay? Um, so keep that in mind, but they work. So what you have is the first step of justification is to be baptized. Normally, that's going to be done with infants, and that's what I show you here. You have a baby, and the baby is born, and they're born dead in sin, meaning they have that original sin we talked about last week, the result of the fall of Adam, uh, that now all of human race is tainted by sin. So the baby is dead in sin, and what you do is you bring the baby and, and to the priest, and then they pronounce it through a ritual, and they baptize the baby in the triune God, and at that moment, you are now beginning the journey of justification. That baby is now justified. What has happened in the Catholic Church theology is that the original sin is gone. It's been erased. So if a little baby dies, they go to heaven because, simply put, the sin that they had has been erased through the sacrament of baptism. But if they live and they then grow, and and I don't know the age, I've been trying to find it, but I haven't found it yet. Um, There's an age in which they now enter into accountability for their actions, their beliefs. But until that time, the, the baptism will still save them. But as they grow, they then begin to perform other sacraments, the sacrament of confirmation, the sacrament a penance, and et cetera, et cetera. And all of these, for the rest of their life, are adding to that justification so that it might grow. So you have original sin, but it's gone. But now that it's gone, you still possess the ability to sin, and that sin has to get paid for somehow, and it's got to get paid for through the sacramental works. All right, so understand that. That's with the babies. Then you go to the adult for the responsible person. Now, this is interesting because I've talked to enough people who uh, a guy meets a girl and he really likes her and she's a Catholic and he's not. And so he's like, yeah, I became a Catholic so I could marry. 
and they wanted to get married. And so he had to go through this process. What's interesting is I don't hear in America often that is done as stringently as the Catholic Church actually mandates it ought to be done. But what's interesting is the casual way that they'll talk about it. Yeah, so I became a Catholic so we could get married. I'm like, wow, okay. Because what they're actually saying when they say I became a Catholic is they became a Christian. They, they were saved. So what happens here? Not a baby, but you, any one of you, you decide I'm going to convert to Catholicism. Well, you're dead in sin right now. That's your problem. You have not just the original sin upon you, though, but you have all of the other sins that you've committed throughout your life sitting on you, and all of that has to be dealt with. So what the Catholic Church teaches is you have to go through these preparatory steps. Once you get this, see that middle line? That's the difference between dead and alive. Spiritually dead, spiritually alive. While you're still spiritually dead, you go and have these three steps. The first step is called actual grace. What actual grace is, is something where God reaches out to the person and enables that person to begin to search for God. So when when Joe meets Sally, and Sally's a Catholic, and she's like, well, we got to get married in a church, and you're not Catholic, so you got to become Catholic. And he's like, okay, I want to get become a Catholic. So he goes and he starts the preparatory steps of becoming a Catholic. The first step, supposedly, is not him wanting to marry her. The first step is God's actual grace working in his heart that he now wants to be saved from his sin. Actual grace is something that God puts in the person to enable the person to begin to search after God. But it's not what they call saving grace. It's called actual grace, and that's not saving grace. It allows you to begin to prepare yourself for that baptism. It's at the baptism where salvation will begin. But you can see right there that now you can understand when a Catholic tells you, no, we're saved by grace. That's what they mean. And that they're serious about it. You are saved by grace because it was actual grace that got you to even want to become a Catholic in the first place. The next thing that is a preparatory step is assent. Now, this requires you to go through a series of instructions. And what you're instructed is uh, the Catholic faith. You need to understand the major creeds and doctrines and practices of the church. And so you go undergo all of this instruction, and then there comes a point where you have to give assent to that. You have to agree that, yeah, I believe those things. I accept those things. And then the final step is to perform good or to do good works. All that means is that you now begin to perform works of charity with the understanding that God will view those works favorably. That will become important in a bit. You'll begin to perform these good works with the understanding God will look upon them with favor for Christ's sake. The works are evidence that you actually do love God. Anyone can say they believe the teachings, but this says that you have to prove it in your works of charity. And so the catechism says in section 1249 that this person, hear this, this person is part of the household of Christ, but they're not saved. So they're part of the household of Christ at this point because they're going through these preparatory steps, but they have not yet entered into the state of salvation. 
So once baptized, now the person is granted what is called sanctifying grace. So remember, we have actual grace, and that gets the whole thing started because it makes it's God making you want to get into the Catholic Church. And now that you've been baptized, you are given sanctifying grace, which is not actual grace. And the person now, again, here's the key word, begins the journey of being justified. Note that baptism, in their teaching, seals the person with an indelible mark that shows that he belongs to Christ. Nothing can erase that mark, which sounds good, right? But it does not mean that you're saved. Remember what I said last week. If you are baptized and then later commit a mortal sin and you have not gone through the next step to resolve your mortal sin, you are in hell. And so there are many countless number of Catholics in hell for all eternity who are children of God and bear this indelible mark of baptism upon them. And so you see in 1272 of the Catechism, it says, I'm quoting it, Incorporated into Christ by baptism, the person baptized is configured to Christ. Baptism seals the Christian with the indelible spiritual mark or character of his belonging to Christ. No sin can erase this mark, even if sin, and I add the word mortal because that's what they're referring to, even if sin prevents baptism from bearing the fruits of salvation meaning you don't go to heaven, you don't gain salvation, you'll never lose the mark. I'm not sure the value of that if you're in hell for all eternity with the mark, but there you go. So they would argue that given once for all, baptism cannot be repeated. This is where my... PowerPoint skills get really fancy. That's a bucket. (laughs) Work with me. After a half an hour of figuring out how to stick a bucket on the screen, I said, oh, this looks buckety, so we'll work with it. All right, so this now introduces the next key term alongside justification, and that is the word infused. The Roman Catholic Church says that through the act of baptism, the person is infused with sanctifying grace. And that places actual righteousness within the person. Get that. That at baptism, you are infused with actual righteousness that's poured into you. This is both qualitative and quantitative qualitative, meaning by quality it is righteous, meaning if you were to take that which is supposed to occur at baptism for a Catholic, and you were to do a litmus test and and run it through all of the various analysis, it would come back 100% righteous. That's by quality what it is. But it is also, here's the bigger issue, it is quantitative. There is a measurable amount. And that measurable amount can vary, and a lot of it has to do with how serious you took those preparatory steps ahead of time. Do you remember them? 
before, how serious you really figured those things out may cause a greater amount of sanctifying grace to come into you. Starting with baptism, then what you begin is to increase the quantity of this grace through the other sacraments. Once it reaches the level God demands, which is absolute, you are now saved. Do you hear that? Once it reaches the level God demands, which is absolute, perfect righteousness, in all respects, you are saved. In the same way, this grace can also be decreased through venial sins. Commit a venial sin, and that level drops a little. Commit a lot of venial sins, it drops more. Commit a mortal sin, and it's gone. Totally. It's wiped away. So picture this sanctifying grace with a level indicator on it. It's going up or down the stairs. It's either growing or decreasing based on how you're cooperating with God's means of grace, which is sacraments. Am I, 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 I've been, are you tracking? Making sense? Okay. It's, it's complex, and, and yet it's important. So you are trying to become justified. It started in your baptism, and you got a certain amount in there, and that's good. All right, now we got to build that, and you're going to start to do that. And the church will tell you, we, God, in his grace, has given you the means to do that through these sacraments. All of it's by grace. So you're saved by grace, brother. You are by grace saved. Go to the various sacraments and partake of them, and you will add to that. But understand, if you don't, those are venial sins and you start to drop down. You'll never drop to empty, and we'll get to that in a second, but you'll drop down. Commit a mortal sin and you're at empty immediately. This is very different, beloved. Very, very different from a biblical idea of grace. The Bible does not make grace a substance that is quantifiable. Grace is God's kindness toward you. Grace is God's mercy toward you. God, grace is God's uh, pity toward you. It is his favor toward you. But more importantly, the very word itself means that it is unmerited, undeserved in every way. If you do something and God then gives you grace, it isn't grace. It can't be grace by its very nature. I'm trying to, off the cuff, come up with some dumb illustration and probably can't do it justice. Just understand that that is not grace. Within the Catholic Church, you have this idea of grace, and it's there, and you have different kinds of grace, actual grace, sanctifying grace, and all of that is working toward this justification, and you're ain't great growing more and more of that in the bucket called you, and you're going up the steps as you do the sacraments, and as you do them faithfully and with faith and believing fervently. So all of this is going on, and you, so you're doing a lot of wonderful things that we would say, wow, uh, what a woman of faith, what a man of faith, 
Look at the man as he pursues and seeks the grace of God. But what you think grace means, for the Catholic who understands this, they understand it's a quantity and it's more going in the bucket and the level goes up or down when they stop. The Roman Catholic Church says you get actual grace that enables you to start moving toward salvation. And then as you do things correctly, you earn the right to be baptized, which then grants you sanctifying grace, which then puts you on the journey to begin to become completely righteous or justified so that you can have eternal life. Now compare that with this. Compare what I just said with this. And you, he's talking to all of the Ephesian Christians. He's, and he's looking at them, and they are Christians, okay? Picture if this would make sense if they were a Catholic. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was you, all of you here. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, But God, up to this point, the only thing you have is his wrath. The only thing you've achieved is sin, right? That's all you got. And you're so good at it that he says you're dead in it. But God, being rich in mercy, not possessing rich mercy that he's going to now dole out in a bucket, okay? He doesn't have like a a little, uh, what do you call them? Not special. What is it? Ladle. Thank you. With a little ladle, he's going to start pouring it. It's what it is, though, right? He's not there, and he's not going to pour it out because he has a lot of mercy. He'll give it. No, it's talking about his demeanor toward these Christians. Be rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Then notice this key thing. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean, Paul? By grace, you've been saved. Note the verb tense. By grace, you have been saved. You're not being saved. You're not hoping for salvation. By grace, you have been saved. And then notice what he says that means. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace, what's that look like? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through baptism, through whatever, no, through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. 
Notice that God works in us while we are in the state of deadness. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is given to us to do to prepare us to become saved. There's no preparatory steps. God doesn't say, all right, you're dead in your sins. Now I'm going to get you a little awake and I expect you to do some things. And even if he says that really sweetly, come on, buddy, I, I want you in. I want you to get these preparatory things underway and then we'll get you to baptism so we can get you started. No. God is so merciful that he works with us while we're dead. And while we're dead, the next state that we are is alive. God makes us alive. And note the tense. God is not making us more and more alive. We are just simply alive. Note again the tense. We are not in the process of being saved. We have been saved. We're not hoping for it. We are. We have been raised with Christ already. Not we will be. We have been. We are not hopefully someday going to be able to sit with Christ. We have been seated with him. All of this is done. It's finished. And that's good news. Can you not see the good news in that? Can you not see what a glorious picture that is versus the other thing? I want to be saved. Really, I just want to marry her, but I want to be saved. So tell me what I got to do. Well, you really want that? Yeah, okay, well, that's a sign of actual grace. So here, I want you to sit down. We're going to go through a series of uh, meetings. And by the way, that that whole preparatory step can take several years, depending on how serious that, that local Catholic church is. You got to learn these things. And once I feel that you not only understand them, but you agree with them, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you things I want you to do to show that you love these things. I want you to sign up for the soup kitchen. I want you to volunteer over here. I want you to volunteer over there, all of that. So I'm saved now. No, you're not saved. You're in the household, but you're not saved. Okay, so how long do I do it? You do that until I have deemed that you have made it. I, the priest. Once I deem that you have done enough... I will baptize you, and then you start becoming saved. Oh, I'm not saved yet. Well, yes, you are, because you got baptized. But, I mean, if you die right then, you're good. But if, perchance, things don't go quite your way, no, then we'll have to do the next step. It is key for us to understand the relationship of grace and sin in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Grace is something we receive into our soul and it grows or shrinks due to various things. Sin is a disposition, an action that has two different levels of seriousness, mortal or venial. Here's the point in all of that. In the Roman Catholic Church, sin can kill grace. Did you hear that? Sin can kill grace. Where sin abounds, Paul says, grace much more abounds. 
But in the Catholic teaching, sin is capable of killing it. So what does one do if he's committed a mortal sin? How can a person become justified again? Because that's what's happened. You were justified, now you're not. The next step in becoming justified is a, a sacrament called penance. Remember, baptism was how you got it the first time. But remember, the Catholic Church says you can only be baptized once and then you're done. The next step is not really a step. Actually, it's a progression, uh, uh, like a journey. It's a restoration. So you have um, on the far left, you're dead in sin. You get baptized. You're now justified. Okay, you're now alive. And you're justified. Justification, it's infused. God ladled out a, a measure of his, his actual righteousness, and you are now that much more righteous. And now you go through the steps. You're going through the confirmation. You're going through uh, the mass. All of the things you're called to do as a Catholic church, in the Catholic church, you're doing that. And that's that arrow. It should be a bunch of steps, but there you go. Until one day you commit the mortal sin. And there are tons of them. And you commit the mortal sin, you're back to dead. You're back to dead. So how do you get back into life? Because you'd like that, right? And you have the sacrament of penance. And the sacramental journey, once you've done that properly, you enter back into that journey again that you left when you committed the mortal sin. Now you're back there, and now you start the process all over again. So, the Roman Catholic Church calls penance... Oh, golly, I'm, I'm on page 8 of 16. Um, The Roman Catholic Church calls penance the second plank of justification. One of the things I'm trying to do in this sermon series is it, it's easy to get up there and just rail. But what I'm trying to do, and I hope I don't bore you, but I'm trying to show you what actually the church teaches. So I've spent way more time than I care to in the Catholic catechism because it is the, the formal, actual, true teaching of the church. In 1446, section 1446, it says this, Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of his church. Above all, for those since baptism have fallen into grave sin. Grave means mortal. And have thus, thus lost their baptismal grace. Now, see, it doesn't sound like you lost your salvation, but that's what baptismal grace is. Baptismal grace is how you go from death to life. And you've wounded ecclesial communion. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. The fathers of the church present this sacrament as the second plank, and I've added the words of salvation because that's what it's talking about, the second plank after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. So how do you get this? You got to get it back. You have penance. 
Well, there's three elements to penance that makes it to make it actually work. The first is you must confess to a priest. Technically, I didn't know this, I learned this. Technically, you don't have to confess to a priest your venial sins. The only sins you need to confess, you must confess to a priest, is a mortal sin. It's not wrong to confess a venial sin, but it's not necessary because you can deal with those through all the other sacraments. Just by doing them, you can resolve them. I didn't know that. But when you're in the confession booth, it's because you've done a mortal sin. That means you're dead and you get in the back. And what will happen is you'll have the confession to a priest, and then you have this thing called an act of contrition that shows your confession was more than words or even a fear of punishment, but it's actually a sorrow of avenging God. And so he'll say, you need to do X. Usually it involves some Hail Marys and some Our Fathers, but it also might be you need to go do this and go do that. So you have to do these acts of contrition. Again, all of that depends. They don't have a manual. For this mortal sin, boom. So each priest will tell you what he says you got to do. And so if you got a really nice priest, so to speak, he'll say, look, 10 Hail Marys, two Our Fathers, and light three candles that you got to buy. Sweet. Get a tough one, and it's not going to be just that. Whatever he says, you got to do. And then the priest will say, I absolve you. He says it in fancy words, but in Latin, but that's what he says. I absolve you. And at this point, the person is pardoned both of the guilt and eternal punishment of the mortal sin. So he's no longer guilty of the sin, and he's pardoned from the eternal consequences of sin, meaning he won't go to hell. But, and what I'm learning more and more as I study the Catholic Church is there's always a but. But, there's still a debt you got to pay. That sounded pretty good. When I first heard that, I'm like, all right, so the guilt's been pardoned, and the eternal punishment's gone. All right. And he's like, yeah, but that's not it. There's also additional debt to divine justice that you have to pay for. And that you have to pay for here or in purgatory. But you got to pay it. I'm going to be unkind here. Christ doesn't pay your sin in the Catholic Church. Not really. Christ doesn't take your sin away. First Peter says that he bore our sins away on his body, but not there. He sort of bore them, kind of bore them, almost bore them, but there's always stuff on you to do, and you got to start doing them. So this then makes you have to do what are called works of satisfaction. And again, it's done through Hail Marys, Our Fathers, giving alms. During Lent is a big season, which we're in right now. And in the Lent, that's a big time for them to contemplate. I think it's six weeks, five or six weeks leading up to Easter. You are expected to fast, to pray, and to abstain from things. That's why you have people say, well, I'm abstaining from coffee or I'm abstaining from beer. 
But often what's missing is the central thing you ought to be doing during Lent, which is almsgiving. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that almsgiving is superior to both prayer and fasting. By giving money, you actually do more for your soul of paying off these this divine justice that's been offended and you got to pay for it. You do more when you give them money than when you pray or fast. And when you do this, literally, this is a direct quote. When you do this, you get more of Jesus and more of grace. My heart broke when I read that. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. Do these things, and you'll get them. This is where it becomes very important to grasp justification. So here's here's the rub, okay? And I'm I'm, I'm going to go a few minutes over because I got to find a normal place to break since. I screwed things up. It's very important for you to grasp justification. Do me a favor and do yourself a favor. Don't ever tell a Catholic that they're justified by works because they're not. Don't say, well, your problem is you believe in works and we believe in faith. That's not true. Don't ever say to a Catholic that they're justified by their own self-righteousness, and we say it's by Christ's righteousness. That's not true either. Actually, the Roman Catholic Church will teach very clearly that to be justified requires both faith and grace. No good Catholic would ever tell you that they are saved on their own, that it began and it will end all by grace starting with actual grace and ending with grace. To be justified requires that the person and work of Jesus Christ be present. So stop saying otherwise, because it's not helpful if you're evangelizing. Because if they go to their priest, they're like, maybe, I don't know, because maybe they even are thinking that. But they go to their priest, their priest will tell them right away because that priest will know. They're like, no, you're saved by faith and grace. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. That's not where the stumbling point is, beloved. So if you're wanting to evangelize a Catholic, let them trip over the key things. The stumbling point is in this one little word called alone. Alone. The Bible teaches that you cannot add anything to faith or grace or Jesus. You are justified by grace alone. You are justified through faith alone. You are justified through Christ alone. That's where the stumbling is. If you were to say, well, you're justified by faith or through faith, they're like, yeah. And then you're like, well, wait, uh, no, you do this. No, it's all by faith. It's all by faith. In that little word alone, though, heaven and hell become separated separated for any person. The Roman Catholic Church says that you can only be justified by faith, 
plus good works performed as prescribed by the church, which are given by grace. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. The Catholic Church will tell you that you are justified by faith plus the good works, the sacramental works that you perform as prescribed by them. And all of that is God's grace and giving you that ability to do that. You had to have grace plus what you merited through the sacraments. You had to have righteousness of Christ, but also your own merited righteousness. This now requires us. We're still just going down the rabbit hole. We haven't gotten down into the good stuff. It requires us to understand what the Catholic Church teaches on merit. By merit, here it comes from the Catholic.com, from their encyclopedia of their doctrine. In merit, in general, is understood that property of a good work which entitles the doer to receive a reward. The, the ellipses, by the way, if you're wondering, what's he leaving out? Latin. And I left it in the next slide just to see what a nice guy I am. Um, to receive a reward from him in whose service the work is done. In a, a theological sense, a supernatural merit can only be a salutary act to which God, in consequence of his infallible promise, owes a supernatural reward, consisting ultimately in eternal life, which is the beatific vision in heaven. If you didn't know the beatific vision in heaven means that you finally get to view God fully as he is, meaning you're in heaven. That's merit. I hope that helped. So, two types of merit or aspects, are taught by the Catholic Church. You have to understand these, because I had to understand them. Condign merit and congruous merit. So, ethics and theology clearly distinguish two kinds of merit. Condign merit, or merit in the strict sense of the word, and two, congruous, or quasi-merit. Condign merit supposes and equality between service and return. It is measured by commutative justice and thus gives a real claim to a reward. Congruous merit, owing to its inadequacy and the lack of intrinsic proportion between the service and the recompense, claims a reward only on the ground of equity. Does that make sense? I'll explain. Condign merit means that something is done so worthy of merit that it demands and has a right to demand the promised reward. In fact, condign merit is so meritorious that to not reward it would be unjust. It is the right of the person to receive the reward. To say it a bit differently, a person under the influence of actual grace performs an act that is beyond normal acts that any unbeliever would do. So they would call that a supernatural act. And if they do that, God has guaranteed a reward for it. 
guaranteed if that was done. However, here's the key. Humans can't do that. <laughs> a couple of your faces are <laughs> hilarious. I'm, I thought that same thing perhaps you thought when I went. I'm like, then why did I go through all this stuff to learn about condign merit? It's so meritorious that God has to do it. He's, he's required to do it. It's a tit for tat. Humans cannot do works of condign merit. In other words, though this is a theoretical reality, it does not ever occur between God and man. So God is never... But this is important. You have to understand this because you'll make Catholics guilty of this and they'll say, uh, no, if they know what they're talking about. God is never in our debt to do something such as save us or grant us eternal life. So it's false to say that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you do good works and God has to reward it by saving you. That's why I'm taking you through that. However, and there's always uh, however, there is congruent merit. Congruent merit. I'm now officially at 60 minutes, so I'm now in overtime. Congruent merit occurs with respect to God when a person under the influence of actual grace does an action which pleases God, but which he is not promised to reward. Sometimes God chooses to reward the act, sometimes not. For example, if we obey Jesus' instruction to supernaturally love our, neighbor, our enemies and pray for them, however, God has not promised that he will answer our prayers concerning them. Although he is pleased with the prayers we are offering out of supernatural love for them, he may not give them the blessing we are asking for them. So, what's this got to do with anything? When you do the penance of satisfaction, remember, we're still dealing with how do you get back into justification. You were baptized, you were doing really good, and then you did that mortal sin, and you're now dead in your sins. You want to be back into justification. You want to get that stuff poured back into you. Well, you've been jumping through these steps. Well, you have to do these works, these merits of satisfaction. So when you do the penance of satisfaction, that work that you're doing, all of those things you're doing, does not meet the standards of condign merit. Rather, it is congruent merit. That means that it is merit that as a result of what is called actual grace, which is influencing you to do those things, but God does not actually promise to reward you for those acts. He may not even give it to you. But in doing these works, it makes it fitting for God to restore the person back into a state of grace. Again, it's all about what do you do when you have a mortal sin? You're a Catholic. Again, I, as, a, as a Protestant believer, none of this makes sense to me. But, but you're a Catholic, and you are in trouble because you committed the mortal sin. you got to get back. He doesn't even give you the guarantee. The Catholic Church won't even give you the guarantee if you do this, you get that. Because that would be condign merit, and that would make you greater than God, and nobody gets that. How do you get out of hell? 
He says, you got to go through the sacrament of penance, and you have to do these works of satisfaction. So if I do these, God will save me. Technically, no. Technically, no. He doesn't necessarily, because if he did that, you would be claiming condign merit, and God does not accept that. So, no, not necessarily. And you're like, then how am I making it? Well, you still do those things because they're congruent merit. Is this not blessing your soul? I'm trying not to be a jerk, but it's like, I'm a poor sinner. And I've been a faithful Catholic, and I have committed a mortal sin, and I don't want to go to hell. I need assurance. So the priest gives you works, congruent works, called works of satisfaction. So they are meritorious, but only congruously. And if you did those things, though God is not... Now, here's the trick. Okay, listen. If you did those things, though God is not forced to restore you back into life, it would be incongruous for him not to. And so he does. And so now you are justified. So let me make a bigger mess of this. You say to the priest, okay, so if I do these things, he has to save me. No. Well, I thought that's how it worked. No, 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 it's not how it works, young man. You committed a mortal sin, you need to do the works of satisfaction. Right, right. And so once I do these things, I'm in again, right? God has to do it. No, that's condign merit. You can't do that. God will not honor that. Okay, then why am I doing it? Because it's still meritorious. I don't think it is. And he puts his hand on me. He says, my son, you need to understand. It's congruent merit. Okay. I, so I do these things called congruent, meritorious works of satisfaction. Right. And you're saying I might get saved? Well, technically, but really you will be saved. Why? Well, because though God is not forced to save you, he will save you. Because to not save you again would be incongruous, inconsistent. So you go do it. Here's the problem. I haven't even begun to talk about faith yet. We're still, I haven't even gotten into justification, truly. And an hour and five minutes have gone by, and I, 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 I'm just going to make a very weird ending here. I don't, because I don't have any other way to do it. We, ha- we have not discussed the idea of faith yet. We have not discussed the idea of what belief is. We have not discussed the idea of what grace is. But there you have the beginnings of their solution. That's what I want you to get. That's the solution that they have. That's what your grandma has. That's what your grandpa has. Whether you believe it or not, whether grandma and grandpa believe it, doesn't matter. That's what the Catholic Church itself teaches. It's serious. You have the problem. You have sin. I need the sin to be resolved. I desperately need it. Well, here's the steps. And it's a life of steps. All of it 
shooting for the goal that eventually that bucket called Matt Henry gets filled all the way up because you will not enter heaven until it is full. And no one except the rarest of people, they're called saints. Only the rarest of the rare go straight to heaven when they die. In fact, even the late last pope that died, it was acknowledged that we should say prayers and have masses done for him because we can hasten his presence from purgatory into heaven. You're like, if a pope's not there, how long am I going to be there? We laugh, but we should weep. We should weep. You got to get the bucket filled. And the only way you do it is by doing these various works of satisfaction the rest of your life, paying off the, the divine justice. Good thing I'm not going to hell, but I still got all this stuff I got to get paid for. And if you die and it's not paid for, and who gets to do it? Because nobody has a little indicator on their body, right? So you're all going to purgatory, and you're in purgatory. And what that is, is a time of divine punishment upon you that cleanses you of all of the rest of the sins that never got resolved until finally the last little tiny dot of sin is scrubbed from your bucket and only righteousness, real righteousness, is yours. And God says, justified. And you are now in his presence. Beloved, that is no gospel. No gospel whatsoever. That is not good news. And if you're playing light and loose with your friends and family who are Catholics, and you're saying, I think they're in. I, I, let, let me say it even harsher. I am so sick and tired of talking to people who never bothered to share Christ to their aunt or uncle or whoever it might be who was a good, faithful Catholic. And then afterward, say, yeah, they died. You know, though, I think, I think they're saved. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? This is what they've done. You have brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, fathers and mothers and grandparents who you love, and they are good, kind, wonderful people on, on, from a human perspective. But if you think that they are any closer to filling that bucket up than you are, you're crazy. It is Christ and Christ alone. Always and ever, it is Christ and Christ alone. You are saved by faith alone, and at that moment, you are fully declared, not made, declared righteous. And that, my friends, is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to this. Open, give us a burden. Father, let us not be fools that, that gain more information and, and then walk around like a little Pharisee clucking our tongue. Some of these men and women, they have a spouse who is in this state and, and, and they are the most arrogant individual rather than a gracious, kind, merciful purveyor of truth. Let those men and women repent. Let them come to their spouses with the kindness that you came to them with and begin to kindly and graciously show 
Let us repent of our lack of understanding of the great salvation with which you've saved us and fill us with an understanding of the seriousness of what it call, is called the gospel and that we have been entrusted with this gospel once for all delivered to the saints and to contend for it, to hold it and delight in it. Help us, Father. Let us not be a church of mean-spirited people who have lost what it means to see the grace of God visit our soul. I ask in your son's name, amen.